Thank you for joining me for Soulful Conversations with my community of fellow travelers, exploring the heart, the mind, and the globe. These conversations highlight what travel really means for the world. Soul of Travel honors the passion and dedication of the people making a positive impact in tourism. Each week, I'll be speaking to women who are tourism professionals, world travelers, and leaders in their communities. We'll explore how travel has changed them and how that has rippled out and inspired them to change the world. These conversations are as much about travel as they are about passion and living life with purpose, chasing dreams, building businesses, and having the desire to make the world a better place. This is a community of people who know travel is more than a vacation. It is an opportunity for personal awareness, and it is a vehicle for change. We are thought leaders, action takers, and heart-centered change makers. I'm Christine weinbrenner Eirich, and this is The Soul of Travel. Marinelle DeJesus is a former civil rights lawyer from Washington, D.C., who turned her passion for hiking into a full-time endeavor as a social entrepreneur, solutions-focused journalist, and speaker. She is the founder of the award-winning media platform Brown Gal Trekker and mountain trekking enterprise Equity Global Treks, both of which aim to elevate the status and roles of women and indigenous communities in the outdoor and travel industries. Marinelle is a full-time global mountain nomad and travels to mountain destinations regularly to explore tourism initiatives that are community-led and or focus on female leadership in the tourism industry. In 2019, she founded the nonprofit human rights organization, the Porter Voice Collective, which aims to advocate for the human rights of porters in Peru, Nepal, Tanzania, and workforce equity tourism as a form of sustainable tourism through the use of storytelling and all forms of media. Marinelle has written for various outdoor and travel publications such as Alpinist Magazine, Outside, Photos, Backpacker Magazine, HuffPost, and Adventure Journal. She is a board member of the American Hiking Society and an advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the travel and outdoor industries. In our conversation, Marinelle and I speak about her journey from civil rights attorney to global mountain nomad, her unexpected stay in Mongolia for 294 days during the pandemic, and the documentary that came out of that experience, and the importance of workforce equity in the tourism industry, and how the Porter Voice Collective is working towards that goal. She is such a passionate and inspiring person with so much knowledge to share. I found myself trying to fit so much into this conversation. Join me now for my soulful conversation with Marinelle De Jesus. Welcome to Soul of Travel. I am so excited for this conversation this evening and I'm really grateful to be joined by um, Marinelle de Jesus and to hear her journey of 
um, going from being a civil rights lawyer to a global mountain nomad, um, what that means, what that journey looks like, and all of the amazing work that you are doing in the tourism industry. Um, and she's joining us from Mongolia. So I'm also super appreciative of her interrupting the work she's doing there to find Wi-Fi and connectivity and join us. So thank you so much for being here tonight. Thanks, Christina. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Um, well, to begin our conversation, I would love uh, to just give you the opportunity to introduce yourself, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are in the space of travel right now, and then we'll kind of go back and um, unpack your journey, if you will. <laughs> yeah, so right now, I would say I'm a social entrepreneur. I have a few organizations I founded. It started out with uh, Brown Gull Trekker, which was, which is a travel media site, which used to be just about hiking and outdoors and traveling. That was the intention in the beginning. But in the end, by now, it has evolved into this idea of advocacy and sort of creating systemic changes in the tourism and outdoor industry. So a lot of the writing I do with Brown Gull Trekker has to do with sort of critiquing the industry so that we can be better at it you know, trying to be more inclusive and diverse and equitable. And alongside Brangal Tracker is what is peak expression or was peak expression is now known as Equity Global Tracks. I am a avid mountain hiker and so I lead a lot of trips all over the world. So Equity Global Tracks is where I do that and I take people all over the world to track different places with equity in mind and inclusion in mind where we actually create the leadership roles for women and in indigenous communities. Um, and the last thing is the Port of Voice Collective, which is a human rights organization I established in 2019. Um, it accompanies my work because it's specifically focused on the porters who are carrying bags up the mountains in Peru, Nepal, Tanzania, who have been uh, experiencing long-term exploitation and extraction by the industry, which I feel has to change. Uh, it has to because, for example, 50 years has it, uh, Inca Trail has been going on for 50 years, and it's it's not had any kind of changes in terms of equity for the porters. So um, so all of these things, actually, although they sound like they're kind of different, but they're very much the same, same mission. Um, I just want to elevate the voices of Indigenous communities and women and people of color in the outdoor and travel spaces. Yeah, thank you. I just was kind of sharing with you a little bit before we hopped on here, but for our listeners, um, there's just so many things that you are passionate about that are things that I really want to bring into the conversation in this industry. So I'm really excited to explore those. I remember being on a few vir virtual calls with you over the past couple of years. And every time you have a moment to speak, I'm just like, oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so I'm just so excited to bring um, your focus to this conversation and start to get to understand a little bit more about the work that you're doing. Um, because I do think that it is so important, um, as you mentioned, especially in this industry, there's been uh, a, a, lo a long standing need for change. And I think um, it's a really great time to be advocating for for people that have been supporting the industry that haven't had the focus on the importance that they are. And I think through the pandemic, as we saw tourism kind of like fall apart and we saw all the pieces kind of as they were separated and we saw the different impacts, I think that really allowed us to see the importance of all of the players 
and all of the pieces that make tourism thrive. I know for me, I felt like that was something that was more able to be seen when we were examining the negative impacts of the loss of tourism in countries, especially like Peru. I work in Peru as well and really seeing the the impact on the families and guides and porters and the tourism industry. Like we really could see how deeply they were impacted by the loss. And I think that also allowed us to see how much we need to show up for those people as the industry rebuilds. So I would love to start with, I know that you talk about community-led tourism versus community-based tourism. And um, I would really love to talk about what that means to you, how you see the difference and how you see that that actually changes how we engage in communities when we travel. Yeah, so I've been in spaces where uh, people use the community-based CBT tourism a lot. And I at first I was like, okay, that sounds fine. You know, basically your uh, project is focused on community or sort of uh, it's originated in the community. But I think it's a, still a vague term as far as I'm concerned. It can be misinterpreted because to me, if you say community-based tourism, it's almost like you can also make an argument that it perhaps refers to sort of packaging something, a product that is community-based, you know, it's almost like it, you can make an argument that it's a term that commodifies, uh, it insinuates commodification in my mind. And the reason why I say that is because I spent a lot of time with the community that we talk about, the Quechua community, the Mongolians, the Kazakh nomadic community. I spent an enormous amount of time getting to know them. And if we say community based, it, it's problematic in my mind because it's not clear who's leading. Where is the power dynamics? And I believe that if we want to change the system and we all agree that there is, is extraction in the tourism industry with indigenous communities, then we have to be upfront with that and transparent. Who is holding the power? Who is the leader? And that's why I like community led because it's clear, right? It's like community, it's community. It's a community product. It's community based. It's, it's already encapsulated in that term, but it's also on top of it. It's community led. So I think it's just one level up from the term CBT. And I think if we start saying community led, at least for consumers, it would be easier to understand who is leading this. And I think it's important to acknowledge who the leaders are, right? Because if we want to dismantle the system, we need to know where the power lies. And if we say community-led, community to me, that's pretty clear. And you have, if that is your product and if that's what you're uh, standing for, then it's clear to the consumers that, that what, what your product is about and they're going to know what to expect. And you are going to be obligated to, to, if that is what you are saying, then you're obligated to follow up with that, right? If it's community-led, it has to be community-led. Community-based, it could be any, that's fluid. It could be anything. Who's leading that? We don't even know. Who's, 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 who's got the say so? Who, may, who makes the decisions? Who profits, right? So to me, I think the community-led term is very powerful. It's dismantling a lot in terms of our mindset, how the system should work, how we want to do it, how do we make that shift. But if we continue to say CBT, community-based, <laughs> I just don't think that it's transparent. And that's a problem when you want to create systemic changes. Yeah, thank you so much for for explaining and clarifying that. I think that is a really important distinction as well. And I do think many of us, when we say that 
we are imply we're meaning to imply that we're engaging with the community and having those conversations, but it also leaves that gray space for people to say they're doing community-based tourism without actually doing that engagement at the front end and really, really actually having community-led tourism and having those discussions. So, and I love, like you said, from a consumer standpoint, it makes it really easy for them to understand what they're getting. I think that in the tourism, we have been genius marketers in creating terms that sound appealing, but aren't very clear as to what they mean. And it it allows for a lot of like movement, like you said, a lot of fluidity in, in what is being created and packaged and sold. So um, I'm realizing that we jumped right in because I knew I was going to be so excited, but I want to talk a little bit about your journey. And I think that um, your background really plays an important role in understanding how you see the tourism industry um, I know that you started um, your career as a civil rights attorney, and then you had this shift. Can you walk us through a little bit of that part of your journey and how you decided to make that transition in your life? Yes. Yeah, so initially, it's really just a hobby hiking, being in the outdoors, backpacking. It was like an obsession. I, I did it as much as I could. Well, I was practicing as a lawyer for 15 years in Washington, D.C., and then I ended up being a leader uh, in the community. I ended up leading hikes all over, took them to local national parks, ended up, you know, going national, and then I became it became international. So by the time I started my company in 2017, I took people to over maybe 25, 30 countries trekking. And that was just a hobby. That wasn't a company. And people told me, Marinelle, do you realize you have another career here? And I laughed. I'm like, no, I'm a lawyer. My path is towards being a judge. You know, that's that's the, how it goes. I was prosecutor. And to me, it's like, how can you even make money or survive with hiking? You know, how do you make that your profession and a job? And I wasn't sure if that was going to be fulfilling. You know, it's a hobby. It's a passion. But I'm not sure if that could be my full time thing. And um, in 2017, my mom died. And that was the shift. I, I knew in my heart, I've always loved hiking. I knew I wasn't really thrilled, you know, with my practice anymore. It was 15 years of doing hardcore human rights, civil rights lawyering. And being a judge is just not something I feel like I'm just going to get stuck if I do that profession. So I, at, at one point, I have this sort of crossroads because people were trying to ask me if I was interested in judgeship. And so in my mind, at that point, I'm like, okay, two options, judgeship or I leave my career. But if I leave my career, what would I be? And I knew in my heart what I wanted to do. I just wanted to hike. And I wanted to just be global and live globally as a nomad. Because I met nomads in, in the 20 years I've traveled. I've met a lot of nomadic people and, and I researched that a lot. But I was, wasn't sure if I could ever do it, you know. And so, um, and so when my mom died, there was clarity. It was a gift that she gave me when she passed. It's, I can't explain it. But when I came back from the funeral from the Philippines, came back to the U.S., there's not a part of me that wanted to go back to my office. And it was just a matter of time to send a message to my boss saying, I'm resigning. And it, it was by email. And I did that before entering Sierra Nevada for a backpacking trip solo. And, um, and it felt good once I hit the trail. I'm like, I made the right decision. And from there, uh, at that point, I had my company established maybe a few months, but it wasn't really, you know, I wasn't full time. But so I decided I'm going to, you know, what, give this a shot. I w- I'm going to run my mountain trekking company full time now. I'm going to do the trekking. I'm going to go for what I want, which is to hike and, and run my organization. 
And, um, and that just evolved throughout where I finally was able to utilize my background as a human rights lawyer because I realized the industry is, is flawed and there's a lot of human rights issues. And so to me, that was something that came later. Uh, at first it was more about, you know, finding my joy of mountain trekking, doing what I love, leaving behind a, a, a profession that I really enjoyed and really was meaningful, but then I had to let it go at some point. And, um, but yeah, but so it all kind of just evolved and it kind of, you know, fell into place. Uh, even in the beginning, even though in the beginning it wasn't very clear. So yeah, it's the life that I had from a lawyer to a mountain nomad. That That's really the journey. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think people's journeys are just so interesting to me to see the pieces. And I think it's also really interesting when things seem like they're really disconnected, but then they always, it's like, you know, life really has this plan for you that like you, you needed to have this part and this part and this part to get to this part. And then, you know, seeing, you know, learning of your career at this point, it makes so much sense to me to see that you would have been a civil rights attorney because of the work that you're doing now. Um, but I can imagine that in that moment and in those early stages of thinking about launching your company, that it just probably felt like the, the most like didn't seem seamless. It seemed like it was a far leap, but, um, I also think yeah. it's so important to, to show examples for women to follow their passion, because I think that is when we can create real impact in the world is when we're doing this thing that really we are deeply fulfilled by in the way that nature and travel can be so fulfilling, but then also find a way to bring in other passions like philanthropy and advocacy. And, um, you know, there's so many different ways that travel intersects with different things in our world that I think is such a great place for people who are multi-passionate to land because we can end up doing so much more than we initially think when we think we just want to start a travel company. And then we start to like get our hands dirty and we're like, oh, okay, now this really makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it definitely, I mean, it didn't make sense 100% before, but I knew it was a feeling more than a thought, to be honest. It's just this drive and intuition saying, a voice saying, you go for it. Don't worry, you go for it. And and you just do it. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I would love to, speaking of like the voice that says, go for it. Um, I'd love to walk to the part in your journey where you are in Mongolia at the beginning of the pandemic and you have kind of a split decision to make of do you stay in Mongolia without like understanding what that means, how long that would be, or do you leave? Um, can you take us to like walk us to that point in your journey and what that decision making process was like? And then we can talk about what that ended up evolving into. Yeah, so it was March, February, March 2020 when I entered Mongolia because the reason why I had a, I had a tour with women from US where we're going to go migrate with Kazakh women as our leaders, as our tour guides. And I thought it was for a women's history month. So I was very excited. Very first time. It's the first time we're launching the initiative. And so I came earlier before my clients came and I decided I'm going to come there earlier to organize and just, you know, plan the tour. And lo and behold, pandemic uh, took hold of Mongolia and the government shut down everything, meaning there were no flights out, there were borders were closed. 
And I, I was, you know, it was shocking for everyone, obviously, because that was the first time we've ever seen that. And but I thought, okay, I got 90 days visa. So by the time this, you know, I have three months to get out. So I was thinking it's probably going to open in a few weeks, you know, no big deal. So I wasn't scared at the first, you know, first time, you know, first, the first moment. But, but then later on, I'm realizing, oh, the news is just getting bigger and bigger, you know? And so I'm realizing, oh boy, you know, I guess this is bigger than I expected and might be a longer uh, stay. So I think by, by April, May, when we finished the documentary film, because I ended up doing the tour anyway by myself with the Women Nomads because they really wanted to do it. It was actually a celebration of their culture from their view to be able to migrate because they haven't done it in a long time. And I didn't want to let them down and say, no, we canceled the tour. So I went I went by myself with the Women Nomads, which is another experience in and of itself being the only tourist. And, um, and so I did a film based on that. So that preoccupied my time. But when the film was ending in May, I started panicking like wow how long am I going to be here I need to go back to my apartment I have my two pets there no you know I have this woman who's supposed to be temporary is she going to stay longer uh, um so I was uh, a bit afraid I was like and I was alone and that's when after I finished that project I came to this reality where there's a pandemic and I'm by myself in a village that I don't really know well um so there was a moment of panic in me you know and then I decided well, here's the thing. I don't know when this is going to end. There are no charter flights. I can't get out. You know, it's out of my control. And it's about sort of relearning sort of how to navigate when you're out of control and sort of going with the flow with the universe and what it wants you to do. So I actually, uh, I turned the panic in more, in more of a productive sort of energy where I decided if this is the case, I'm just going to count my days here. I actually started counting how many days I've been stuck in Mongolia because I don't know when I'm going to leave. Just kind of at first it's for fun mentally, like, OK, it's day 200 now. I'm still here. Uh, I wonder which day would I be flying home? But, you know, the funny thing with the counting, it almost made me subconsciously, subconsciously realize if I am going to count the day, I'm going to make the day count. Because I am here for a reason. I don't know why, but I am here, right? I just had this blind faith that if I can't control the situation and someone else is controlling it, then someone wants me to be here. And so I counted the days, day 201. What am I doing today? I'm not, I'm going to do anything but mope around, you know, like cry over the fact that I'm stranded. So it actually motivated me to do things, to be reflective, to be productive. It doesn't always have to be travel, but maybe go out to the bazaar, you know, and see the local people, just something other than dwell in the fact that I'm stranded. Cause that's what I didn't want to do is to, to basically be, you know, stuck in my pain or sort of suffering. Right. And it worked. I uh, the the days went by. I did so many different things. From after the film, I went to different parts of Mongolia, met people. I got invited to the eagle hunting community, and that's how I ended up having that relationship with them. I taught English to the kids at the very end of my journey, and and so on and so forth. And then two hundred ninety four days later, I flew out, and that was the sort of the in a nutshell what it was there were so many bits and pieces in there that i could talk about but but really it's a, a special moment that i know i will never be able to recreate again because i'm back in mongolia now and honestly it's not the same you know i see tourists again you know and um it feels good to be back with the community but it's a different kind of relationship now right 
So um, I will never be able to get back to 294 days. And because this project came out of that, now I, I had the aha moment and realized this is why I was stuck there. It was because there was this project. Hey, it's Christine. Interrupting this episode for just a minute to invite you to join me for my Lotus Sojourns Women's Wilderness and Yoga Retreat in Alaska in March of 2023. We'll be traveling 63 miles north of the Arctic Circle to stay at Arctic Hive, owned by my friend Molly Busby and her husband Sean. This boutique property nestled in the Brooks Range is way off the beaten path and also off-grid. We'll stay in beautiful and cozy cabins built by hand by our hosts. Practice yoga in their yoga dome, lovingly referred to as the hive, with gorgeous views of surrounding nature. We'll explore the wilderness by snowshoe and dog sled, connect with members of the local community to learn about living in this remote environment, enjoy daily yoga practice and vegan meals, all while keeping our eye out for the beautiful northern lights that like to show off their magic this time of year. I only have six spaces for this unique adventure, and a few are already taken. I'd suggest pausing this episode and hopping over to the Lotus Sojourns website to book yours today. Please share this experience with anyone you know who would love this restorative adventure. Want to learn more? You can listen to my Soul of Travel conversation with Molly Busby, Check out episode 67. Now, let's hop back to our soulful conversation. It's so amazing just to kind of to hear that journey and so many things it seems like the 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 uh documentary in and of itself um talking about that migration and and being able to share that. And that's really kind of an extension of this um, community led tourism, like being able to tell that story in that way, which probably could have never happened if things have gone as planned. So you already have that gift of time, which also I think so many of us were kind of dancing with during the pandemic, but for you, it's even a different experience because you're also in a place that is unfamiliar. And like many of us, we don't know when anything's going to start to look normal, if we can call it that again. But also like you're just you you don't even know when you're going home. And so then to be able to kind of really focus on this power of travel and connection and community, like in action, because you're living it, you're like, what else can I do with it? And then the next thing shows up, which you were talking about meeting this community um, and beginning to figure out, okay, what does this next project, um, with these, um, can you remind me of the name of the community that the Eagle Hunters, Kazakh? Is that right? Yeah. It's Kazakh nomads. Yeah. Um, and so I know you're there again. So can you tell us what, what has happened? What is this project that you are returning to now? So I guess I can give you the backstory. I so I spent uh, I was invited by the community multiple times. There was an eagle huntress. Her name is Amadir. She was part of the filming in March 2020, and that's how I met her. She was 10 back then, and we we know about her eagle hunting skills. She was uh, one of the very few women who who does eagle hunting, and I think there's about just a dozen of them. She's the youngest, 
And so um, she actually basically competed in 2020 in September. I came to see her compete and she won the championship, beat 60 adult men. She was the only female and the only minor competing and she beat all the men. And so to me, witnessing that just shifted everything in my mind, how it, what it means in terms of being a woman and the women empowerment. And I can go on about Delma Deer because to me, she was an inspiration. Um, and coming from Peru, where I was a target of the film, because I, I'm a woman, there was a lot of sexism happening because I was the producer of that film against a lot of men. I experienced a lot of uh, sexism in Peru. So when I met Amadir, it was a breath of fresh air for me to realize the power of women. And it almost like reclaimed my own power because I almost lost it in Peru when I had a death threat uh, before coming to Mongolia. So this is a lot of backstory to the backstory. <laughs> Honestly, this has been a journey for me. Mongolia happened for that reason to, to kind of reinvigorate who I am as a woman because I really felt defeated at the end in Peru when I, when I left and finished the filming. Um, so Amadir is the, really the catalyst for the project that we have because at one point after the competition, she told me she wanted to learn English. And I had nothing else going on back when the fall came, autumn came. And I said, you know what? Why don't I teach her some English? I have teaching background and, you know, I'm a lawyer. So English is like something that I always use. And so I'll be, I'll, I'll be helpful enough for her to learn a little bit. And so, uh, but the, someone in the community found out about me. She's Baha, my co-founder of Kuzbegi English and Nomadic Culture Camp, who's an English teacher in Sexai and a tour guide. So she found me and she said, I heard you want to teach Amadir. Do you want to come stay with me? And I'm like, oh, okay, uh, this is great because I, you know, Amadir doesn't speak English at all. Her family doesn't speak it and she's speaking English. So I think that would make it easy for me to work with the community. And I did. I, at first, I was reluctant because I wasn't sure what role I would be playing and I didn't want to. I'm very conscious of like the invitation from a community and what role I'll be playing, what this is about, the relationship, because I know the tourism industry is so extractive and I don't want to be put in that situation. But I decided, okay, I'm going to give it a shot. If it doesn't work out, I can always leave. And I did. And that was the best part of Mongolia. I ended up teaching not just on Madeir. I got assigned a dozen kids. <laughs> and so it's more than I bargained for. But um, but it was so worth it because that was the beginning of the Kuzvegi project. It was my own experience that gave me, that created Kuzvegi. And the reason why I created Kuzvegi is because I thought that was the best way to create human connection with the community is when you actually give back, not in like money, in terms of money. It wasn't money at all. It was it was exactly what I, they wanted, giving them what they wanted, which is English language. Because in that part of the world, they're isolated from, you know, the English speaking world. And so they, they really need someone who is fluent, who's a native speaker to be, to be teaching English so that they can learn. Because even the English teachers are struggling with English. So it's not, there is language inequity that's happening in the community. And so it's very clear to me what the community wants from the very beginning. What the, the value of English language was so high. It's so high that, that they, the kid, the parents really would want their kids to go somewhere privately to learn, but they don't have that resource. And so I spent months uh, teaching English with Baha in her house and in the school. And eventually I had to leave, uh, in November. But, um, but that was when we had a lot of tea with Baha. I had a lot of conversations with Baha over her dreams and vision for the eagle hunting community. 
And that was really it. I mean, I wasn't there to plan or scout a trip. I was there to survive the pandemic, to be honest. I was just like waiting and it's like, oh, when am I going to go home? And But yeah, this is great. I'm like hanging out with the community. I, at least I have people with me, you know, it's for my survival. But but Baha shared her dreams for the eagle hunting community with me over Mongolian milk tea. You know, it, those were the conversations that I remember how Kusvedi was born. She told me about her museum she wants a library she would love to have some camps in her home outside her house where she can teach kids over the summer she wants more foreigners to come she told me all you know all her ideas and I'm just sitting there like drinking tea I'm like okay <laughs> like and then I'm thinking I'm not sure if Baha thinks like what why is she telling me this you know I don't I can't do anything you know like like I don't know if that's something I would do I'm a hiker I do hiking trails and things like that I work with the porters but um, but yeah, that was it. I left. And then all of a sudden, it's the UNWTO ITB Berlin Social Entrepreneurship Competition that came in June of 2021. And I read the what it was about. And I'm like, oh, but I do social entrepreneurship. You know, I have a company. I have an idea. And I thought about the Mongolian idea, Baha's ideas and dreams. And I said, wow, this is like almost like too perfect, you know, what they're looking for and what the idea and this, this what Baha wanted is exactly what this competition is looking for. So I wrote a proposal uh, thinking, oh, if it goes, it goes. If it doesn't, that's okay. You know, I tried. I told Baha about it. Baha, hey, there's this competition. I'm going to pitch your ideas to this competition, see where it goes. And it went all the way to, to winning the, the launch track with the competition so that's when i realized oh wow we did have something you know and it's still kind of surreal because now we're it's now here we're, i'm here now i came back to launch the kusvegi english and nomadic culture camp which was born out of my pandemic experience in mongolia two years ago yeah thank you uh for sharing that it's really beautiful to hear and kind of like we were talking before it's just so interesting how things show up and we wouldn't have, you wouldn't have expected i mean the 300 days before you went to mongolia or you know before that journey started coming then having the project coming home having this thing land in front of you and being able to help them make those dreams come true and also you being someone who is able to really understand sitting with community and listening to the needs and yeah. the wishes and the dreams. Cause not everyone would maybe have that ability to do that or, or just understand the importance of doing that. Even if it's just holding space for the conversation without like in that moment, it wasn't with an intention of bringing that dream forward, but it was really important to witness that conversation. Um, I, I would love to um, now kind of talk about, you mentioned um, just really quickly your work with Porters. Um, this is really where I was drawn to you is hearing you um, talking about the Porter Voice Collective and um, really talking about workforce equity. And we kind of led this conversation with talking about changes that we have seen that need to be made from a systemic level in the industry. Um, this is something that as I have traveled, um, both looking at workforce equity and also indigenous rights, and then that also just always lay lays in there with women's rights, like it's all intersected. But um, can you talk about the Porter Voice Collective, what it's, um, how it came about, the intention behind it, and kind of the, the work that you've been doing 
within that space? Sure. So uh, port, the Port of West Collective came out of my years of experience tracking and taking people all over the world. And including that includes, of course, the supported tracks uh, that we know in Nepal, Peru, Tanzania. Tanzania has Kilimanjaro, for example. Nepal has the Himalayan trails like Everest Base Camp, Annapurna Circuit, Gokyo Lakes. And then there's the um, Peru, which is Inca Trail, right? Everyone goes to the four-day classic Inca Trail. And the common thread among these three countries is the fact that the industry relies heavily on porters, mountain expedition workers. If you're a climber, you know about the Sherpas, like, for example, climbing Everest, right? So it's the same concept, but this is like low-altitude, non-technical trekking with the support of the porters carrying your bags up the mountains. Um, so, you know, on the surface, when I first initi initiated this sort of trekking uh, all over the world with porters, you think that, oh, it's a good thing that they're getting jobs, right? On the surface, you'd think, oh, this is good. It's benefiting them. But when I spent a lot of time taking people to these places, porters started talking to me. I, I don't know why, maybe because I'm brown, you know, like I look like them in Peru. I think that's part, that's one thing that I realized about my identity that it elevated. It actually helps me with my relationships with local people sometimes because they see me as kind of like you're brown, you're, you're different, you know, and then they open up. And uh, I would talk to people in Tanzania, the Kilimanjaro porters, the Peru porters, the Nepali porters. I, and I'm I'm very curious. I'm an investigator by nature because I'm a prosecutor. So when they start talking to me, I ask questions because I don't leave. I just don't like, yeah, yeah, okay, end the conversation. I actually am very curious. And my, my focus is human rights. So when they start talking about their work, that's when I realize, wow, you know, they're trusting me with the truth, with what the deal is, because they don't tell everyone about what's going on in the industry, right? But then also I realized because now I'm part of the industry, I shifted from a consumer to a, to, a, to an operator in some way. They also became more open with me because now we're talking because we're colleagues. We kind of work together. That, that's when I really found out what's going on. And I live in the places where they live. That's the biggest thing. I'm not just an operator who comes there just for five days to do a tour. I live in Peru. My neighbors are Quechua. So I do, that's exactly what I do intentionally as a global mountain nomad. That aspect of me is very important in my work. Because if I live in the U.S. and I'm doing this work, you, I will never know the truth. I will, there isn't, there's, that's not an investment. You got to invest in the community to really know the truth, to really understand what it's about. And that's what I have that's unique with the life that I live. And so because of all that, you know, it became very clear to me what is going on. For 50 years, the, the Peru uh, porters have been struggling with their rights and no one has been talking about it. You know, it's going, ha it's happening on the ground because I see it. I'm part of the community. I know the porter president, the federation president. He's now my good friend. I'm a, I'm a godmother to his godson. So you forge these relationships and you, you really get involved. And so, so for example, the porter federation has 8,000 porter members, all men. So that's a layer of another issue with equity with women. They're not included. Uh, and they've been fighting for 50 years. There is a Porter law, but it's not, it's not enough. It's not working for them. There are, there is no accountability and consequences when people violate the rules. Um, so it's aspirational, not really effective, but just uh, an idea, but it has to get, we have to improve on the laws. 
we have to create guidelines and we have to make people accountable, like really accountable. And that's how companies get away with it because there, there's a fine, but it's very small. It doesn't really matter. It's just a slap, you know, on the wrist. So, um, and, and really, to be honest with you, the saddest part of all this is that we have an industry that has pretty much cultivated a workforce that has no self, they have no self-determination and they have no sense of dignity. So we created a workforce where I interview them. This had, this is now it made sense to me why when I interview each and every porter, they always look down on the ground. It's almost like they're ashamed of who they are as a porter. This is the result of a tourism industry that's been exploitative for 50 years. And this is to me the most heartbreaking thing because you can, you can remedy the salary, right? You can remedy the medical insurance, the lack of it by creating it, but you can never give back a person's dignity when it's lost. And that's why I still fight for it. It isn't just a tangible aspect of money or better working conditions, getting better tents, giving them better shoes or raincoats. It's that dignity. It's that pride being Quechua. We took that away as an industry. How do you give that back? I think you're going to have to dismantle that for generations to come. 50 years, we've already taken it away. How come we haven't started giving it back? And this is Peru that I'm giving an example to, but this applies to Nepali porters. This applies to the Kilimanjaro porters. Same demeanor, same mindset. They feel oppressed and they will always be oppressed because what power do they have, right? So the industry is a culprit for, for systemic oppression. Um, and I'm convinced this is pretty much a modern day slavery. I can make an argument for that based on all the interviews I've done. Yeah. So Porter Voice Collective has, was born out of that desire for me. Uh, at the very least, what I could do is unburden myself with the truths that I know all these years. Because to me, it's also torture to be to carrying this truth with no outlet, right? No, no change for them. And so I felt obligated to start talking. And the Border Voice Collective is really a microphone to elevate their voices uh, in whatever way I can, whether that's film, article writing, right, writing articles for magazines who wanna listen to this topic or want to be able to want to talk about it uh webinars talking with you as a, in a podcast anything that i could do to really just say to the world we have a problem here please pay attention because they've been dealing with this for 50 years or more and because they're not going to be able to speak to the world right they don't have that microphone they're not coming on a podcast they don't even speak english we have language equity issues yet again right uh there are a lot of barriers and i feel like you know, if I'm only one person, but maybe one day there'll be more. And and that's really my hope with the Porter Voice Collective is just to elevate those voices. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, if we are kind of looking at this um, from gaining a little bit more understanding, what would you say that travelers are seeing or not seeing in their interactions with porters? Like how can they start to understand whether their porters are treated fairly or how can operators who are working with local operators and agencies in these areas start to ask the right questions, I guess, because I think a lot of this, like you said, has been hidden in the industry. It's been built into the industry and people haven't asked questions because obviously it's convenient uh, to have 
cheap labor serving when you're creating a business, this allows for the economic success of, yeah. of larger industry. Um, and I think, you know, there, there has to be a way, I guess, for us to start engaging with porters. Most people aren't going to have conversations like you have, right? I have had the opportunity a few times to witness something, notice that it doesn't feel comfortable for me. It doesn't feel right. I'm noticing that there is inequity and, and I've had the privilege of, of really being able to have some conversations, which is why when I heard you talking about this, I was like, Oh my goodness, someone is creating a space for these conversations because I think, uh, it's, immeasurably important. <laughs> um, so how as travelers, what, what would we be seeing or not seeing? I mean, I, I, I know for me reading a few of the articles that you've written, for instance, like I, I've had guides, so not porters, but guides, you know, drop me off at a hotel and then go somewhere else to sleep. And for me, I was like, wait a second, this doesn't feel right to me. Um, that's not, that's not how I want to have travel be like, I want this to be a, a, a shared experience. And that doesn't, that already feels extractive. But then you look at porters and you can probably speak to this um, much better than I can, but there's definitely a, a hierarchy um, within the industry. But what are the things we can look for, the questions we can ask, the conversations we can have so that we're starting to be the advocates for change, I guess? I think, you know, just asking questions will go a long way. Uh, basically expressing that you are concerned about workforce equity. Uh, the reason why I created Port of Voice is because it's a resource for tourists, consumers, uh, because there's no resource out there. There are a lot of platforms and organizations claiming to support porters, but to what extent are they really interviewing porters and giving them the microphone and having their story told? Not, not a lot, right? There's not a lot of conversations with the porters directly. So, for example, I think at the very least what you can do that's not going to be too much of a burden when you're tracking is pay attention. Just observe. Be an observant, you know, observer. You know, look at where they sleep, for example. What are they eating? You know, uh, how do they look like on the trail? Are they exhausted? Do they, do they look like they're having enough rest, right? What are they wearing? Are they proper for the for the mountain trail, right? If it's raining, do they have rain jackets? Make note of even making notes of those things, kind of like be, be observing, caring about those conditions on the trail would go a long way. And I would say once you observe those things, uh, and that doesn't even require talking to porters. That's just observing with your eyes and ears, right? Uh, and then go to the operator at the end of the tour and say, you know what? I'm concerned about what they're wearing. I'm concerned about the tent. They, all, they had five people in one tent and the tent is old. Um, and it was raining, you know, um, I'm concerned about, um, you know, they seem kind of not too happy about the job. You can pick up on that because people who are, are not happy with their jobs, you can tell, you know, if they're proud of their jobs, they're, you know, you can tell, right? So just, just being highly curious and observant of the conditions on the trail without even speaking with them can go a long way. And then tell the operator you're concerned about this because, because that's how it sort of, you know, it convinces an operator to look into it. 
the more people talk about it and question that practice, the more they're going to have to look into it because they're going to be worried about profits. Like, well, this might be a problem. I don't want to lose customers if they're going to think this is a problem. They're not going to recommend me because they shared some concern that I need to fix. Um, now, if you want to engage in conversations, which could be more difficult because I have to say it, not all, not all of them, a lot of them don't speak English. And you're going to rely on a guide to do interpretation. And sometimes the guides, they work for the company. They're, they're biased. They're not for the porters necessarily. They're for their own selves. And they always have to be on the good side of the operator, right? So they're not going to badmouth the operator. They're not going to show the negative sides. They're going to try to paint it as beautifully as possible. So, you know, because they got to work. They have to have that job. And so I wouldn't rely on the guides for any kind of observations or sort of uh, recording any information. But if you really want to talk to the porters and there's no other option, then have the guide translate, right? Um, but also be do it in, with caution because you can't always 100% rely on the guide in terms of interpretation. Catch what to Spanish, Spanish to English, whatever. Um, but but once in a while, you do run into porters who speak a little bit of English, and they're because they're learning to become guide. So if you're able to see someone like that or meet someone like that, definitely engage in a conversation to find out about how work is like for them. You know, there's a chance they may not tell you exactly what what the truth is because they don't know you and you're a tourist and you're buying the product. But at the very least, you know, maybe you'll find something or at least, you know, you'll you'll learn something that that might be helpful. But it's worth a shot. But I think the best thing you can really do as a tourist is to do the observations themselves because you can't really contradict, an, you know, for me as a lawyer, if you observe something, that's direct evidence. If you see how they're sleeping and what they're wearing, those are undisputed facts and they are undisputed evidence, right? Because it's based on your firsthand observation. Uh, words are always very, um, you know, that's not something reliable at all, like statements made by porters or guides, right? So any, especially operators. So. Uh, so observing and questioning, um, even when you're buying a product from the get-go, you can always ask them, hey, I really w- would like to know more about how you treat porters. Can you tell me what what are they paid? You know, do they get medical insurance? How much are they eating on the trail? What are they eating? You know, what are the perks? Are you giving them any kind of support when someone gets sick? And all this actually is on the Porter Voice Collective. The questions, the different topics you can uh, engage in with the operator. We give you a guideline on what to say or what to ask. But having conversation about workforce equity and using the term workforce equity is good because you know it's not just you're like curious about the porters. You're interested in systemic change and it's called workforce equity, right? And that's why Porter Voice Collective is adamant about using that. If we're going to use ethical travel, if we're going to talk about sustainability, well, let's talk about the workforce equity because, you know, that's part of sustainability. So conversations, engaging in it, because it's going to start changing the mindset of the operator thinking there's something going on here. There's some momentum towards workforce equity. I got to look into it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Well, I... There's so many other things that I want to talk about, but we we have kind of a little bit um, unpacked how this intersects with indigenous rights and women's rights. Can we just kind of look at that a little bit? And again, I think like you mentioned that asking questions is the most important thing we can do. So like how we can just kind of for people who are listening, maybe light that spark that says, okay, how what else can I look at when I am really seeking more responsible and equitable travel experiences 
um, what else they can pay attention to. Because I know, for instance, you mentioned that there is often language inequity and that the, the porters are speaking Quechua. Um, and then that, that culture for, for me, I'm so excited when I see that, right? Because that's actually what I want to learn about. That's for me, those porters and these local community members that we have the, the privilege of connecting with when we travel. This is why we should be traveling. In my opinion, this is who we should be learning from. These are the voices we should be celebrating. And I have had the hardest time trying to understand through, through my life of traveling. Like I, I'm always trying to understand why indigenous voices aren't the ones that we're celebrating and that we're seeking out connection with and engaging with, because that's who's going to tell the story of the place that we're in. Um, I don't, I would love to hear your, I guess, um, advice for how we can also become an advocate for, for those voices. And I think that really also brings in. Uh, elevating the voices of women in communities that are also not being heard. It's like a, a double, a double repressed voice. Yeah. So within the, for example, within the porter uh, issues that I mentioned, you know, in general, we talk about workforce equity issues with porters in general. Within that frame, there is a problem with gender equity. And what I mean by that is even within the porter community, women are not being acknowledged as part of the industry and they are getting backlash, they're stigmatized, they have barriers, they have the glass ceiling. To be a female porter is hard right now in all three regions because men still have this idea that culturally you're supposed to stay home as a woman. They have the argument about religion, for example, that by relig- based on religion, you're not supposed to be doing this kind of work. It, you know, a lot of the, the different kind of arguments we make against women working, right? Like the glass ceiling and the barriers, they all exist in three regions. So as a woman, not only is it hard as in general, because of the working conditions that are, you know, mediocre and exploitative, you also have to deal with the fact that you're a woman and you're not welcome. So I think I want people to keep that in mind that there is this other layer of inequity besides the workforce equity issue, which is the women issue, the the gender, our ability to be who we are, And when I say women empowerment, what I learned about indigenous women and just women in general, and including myself, women empowerment is a a human issue, not a gender issue, to be honest. It's all about being our true selves. You know, if I wanted to be a global mountain nomad, I should be able to do that because that's who I am. Does it matter whether I'm a woman or man? No. But honestly, I have to tell you, saying I want to be a global mountain nomad would have been probably easier to be said by a man. Because me being a woman, my family even thought I'm crazy. You should be married, you know. So women empowerment really relies on freedom to be ourselves, right? And we need to keep that in mind in these spaces and travel spaces that we get into, especially with the local community, that gender equity is a problem. And no matter whether that's the porters, the guides, it actually permeates the entire industry, as far as I know, right? As far as I've seen. And even in Mongolia, where we have a woman-led Kuzbegi camp, um, you know, we still, I have to say, actually, this is the least sexist place I've ever been in or situation because we're woman-led, we're women of color-led, and a lot of our students are women as well, And but the men are supporting it. So um, there is hope there, that things are changing, right, slowly. That's an example of a change that I've seen, uh, in, in, you know, that happened in Mongolia. 
But in Peru, it's still very slow. You know, I ha I'm sad to say in Tanzania and Nepal, the trekking industries, women are having a hard time getting into these spaces and working safely because there is a risk for them, for the porters. Just uh, I want people to know that if you are, if you see a female porter, chances are they're dealing with things that you don't know about Be besides the working conditions. One, being unsafe on the trail, they get harassed. We've, we receive reports of sexual harassment. We even read some article about a woman being sexually assaulted in Kilimanjaro. Uh, so some of this, most of this are not being documented too. Think about it, because why would they want to report that? It, according to the women, there is no consequence for people who, who do anything like that. The men are, are you know, protected. They're not, there's no law protecting women when it comes to sexual assault or harassment at all. So they don't report it. So we still have... A, a, an industry where when women are porters or even guides, uh, we don't have any protection. We don't have safety nets for women. We don't have laws protecting women's rights on these trails. And that's one of the goals I have for Porter Voice Collective is one, not only work on the porter laws in general, but create a guideline for women porters worldwide to, to create a safety uh, measures for them, like a guideline for everyone to, to follow and even create laws to protect women in these mountains. So we're still lacking that. We're so far behind with that. So I want people to keep that in mind. When you see a female porter, I bet I bet you you're de they're dealing with a lot more than just what men deal with on the trail. So we have to advocate for them. How do we do that? We tell operators. We ask questions about it. You have a female porter. How are you protecting them? You know, uh, how is it, how is it like? How do you keep them safe? Do you do you tell the do you have do you engage in conversations with the male porters? So. They understand what it means for women porters to be there because we need to have some sort of cultural training as well for men to understand what their role is with the women porters and how they can engage with them effectively. Um, so ask the operators about the women. Why do you have women porters? Uh, what does it mean to you to have women porters? Because I do want to warn people, women have also been commodified. Women porters are there as marketing tool. And we have to be conscious of that too, that a lot of this, are, it's great that they're working. But a lot of, I received complaints from women that they're tired of being commodified. They have to talk to writers. They have to publicize. The operators are pressuring them to be part of a film so that, you know, so that can be a marketing tool for the operator. So we need to really have a close eye on whether an operator is really supporting gender equity or are they really just using women as a marketing tool? Because sadly, that's also happening, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I feel like it's so much to talk about. It honestly. is so much. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much. Like, and we're going to yeah. be out of time. But yeah, I, yes, all of the things that you just said. And honestly, something I've really grappled with in, in my business because I do want to support women. I, I want to use women guides. I guide women on trips. I want them to connect with women. And that means guides and porters and entrepreneurs and artisans. And yet, like you said, then this means are, are we commodifying the women and making them a part of this experience? And how do we make sure that we're doing this in a way that is equitable? And, um, again, I think the most important thing, like you said, is asking the questions. This is the way that we're going to make sure conversations are happening. This is where we're going to uncover when things are not working right? This is where we're going to realize where things are working right so that we can make sure that we're creating best practices that um, highlight those success stories. And um, also just you mentioning thinking about um, safety for for 
porters and for female guides, this is, that's the conversation I've had so many times. And, you know, the very first time having those conversations, that's something that really shakes you. And and when you really want to advocate for those women to be a part of this industry in the way that they want to, and knowing full well that they're putting themselves in harm's way to, to kind of break through this glass ceiling. Um, it's also a really hard conversation to have. And um, yeah, I don't feel like we're going to come to obviously any resolve in this one hour conversation, but I, I just so deeply appreciate the work that you are doing um, for people that want to learn more, because I feel like we've not even scratched the surface, honestly, how can they connect with you? Uh, what beyond visiting the Porter Voice Collective, I know that they can check out the documentary and you have another um, film coming out as well that is going to be examining some of this. Um, where, where should people um, head for more information? Yeah, so for the Porter issues, human rights issues uh, with the workforce equity, uh, you can go to portervoicecollective.org. That's the website. You can, there are resources there to educate yourself about the problem and then be an advocate. If you have questions, you can send an email uh, at theportervoice at gmail.com. I also have my website, Brown Gold Tracker, which has Equity Global Tracks, the mountain tracking organization that I have. If you want to join our tours, like Kuzbegi Camp, for example, the 30 day initiative in Mongolia, I have that as well. I have woman led Kilimanjaro climbs, woman led climbs in Nepal and Peru. Uh, I, I basically focus on women a lot with the guiding, but also community led type of projects. Uh, so they can check out Equity Global Tracks on Brown Gold Tracker dot com website um and and just you know a lot of the critiques and writings i have about the the industry you can find them there as well but you can send me an email uh through the website as well browngoldtracker.com so yeah and i i really encourage people i i have spent a lot of time the last couple weeks just like picking one and reading it and then that sends me like down a rabbit hole of like examining a few other things and i come back to your website and read another article and then I'm off, but I feel like um, there there's so much there. Um, I really, really appreciate your time with me today. Again, I, I don't even know how we've already talked this long because I feel like we could have talked about so many more things, but I, um, I so strongly believe in the work that you're doing. I know many, many of my listeners um, also, this will deeply resonate with them. So I hope that this has just created a, a space for taking a closer look at what is happening behind the scenes in the industry. So many travelers um, are really starting to see behind the curtain. I think like we mentioned at the beginning of this mm -hmm. conversation and really understand that it's so much more than this like peak experience that happens this like, you know, five day trek is just the the tip of the wave. And there's so many pieces that come together to create that experience. And I think that's what we really, really need to be looking at and understanding how that comes together to create this moment that tra us as travelers are looking forward to and should look forward to. But I think there's so many ways we can strengthen what we're doing in this industry. Yes. And I, I think I just, I mean, just one last sort of advice I would give everyone besides the questioning and, and sort of having these conversations is you you want to just really focus on where the voice is coming from. You know, for me, it's like when I first got into the travel industry, I noticed uh, there's a pattern where a lot of the people talking are not the local people, but we talk about them like subjects. 
like we talk about them, they they do exist, but we never have them in the platform. You know what I mean? Think about access. I think about access a lot with my work. I think about voice a lot about my work when it comes to local people. Like if I am going to go to a place, why just not, you know, don't listen to the middleman. Don't listen to the people in the front end. Try to figure out and get as close as possible to the local community directly. I'm a avid supporter of community-led tourism because when I spoke with the porters, what they really want is to invite guests to come to their home and and people to become guests and them being the host. And to me, that tells me they want a direct link with the world. They don't want to be run by operators because you know what the best part of tourism is? It's really those people who live there, not the operators who are running business. You know what I mean? So I'm always fascinated why we have an industry where there's so many middlemen, there's so many people of us kind of like going through all these people just to get to really the the heart of it, which is the community. And this is, I, I want to share something what the community is feeling at this point. They want to be part of the, the tourism industry, but they want to be directly part of it, not anymore in the background because they've been in the background for so long. That's why Kuzbegi Camp is important because they're in the forefront. Um, if anything, I'm the only one person who's like the outsider, but I'm, I'm, I'm so, I mean, I don't even, I mean, to me, this is a passion project. I don't make money off of it. This is a project that I've done for free. I, free time, all my labor and, and labor of love for me on my end. And I'm going to leave it behind at some point for them to run. So we need to start thinking about how do we create the host guest situation relationship more than a service? The industry uh, uses porters and guides as service providers. We have to start thinking of them as the hosts and the owners of their tourism. That's a huge goal. I don't know if that's going to happen, but that's to me that's the that's the mode and the path towards decolonizing. That's another topic we can all talk about because I'm always fascinated why so many outside people are involved in the Peru industry. Why are we not letting them run? Because the way I felt from the Porter Federation president and the communities that I've spoken to, they want to be directly linked to the consumers, no longer being used or hired or whatever else, because that's where exploitation happens. But if they are the leaders of their own tourism, they're the direct link, they run their own you know, tours, there's no more room for exploitation. We're going to get rid of all of that, right? So we always have to, I want to ask that question of the industry. Why is it there? Is there a need for huge companies from US, from from UK, from all these places to be in it? What is our role? What is the role of these people? Because the problem is, we are creating exploitation by being here. Maybe we need to leave the space and give that back to the community because that community, that that tourism in Peru belongs to Peru. It really, really doesn't belong to any of us, to be honest. It's not our product. It's not even our product. It's theirs. But we're going there to go get it and sell it. We need to have a reflection. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing, what we are as outsiders, but we have to have an honest conversation about what our role is about. Right. Absolutely. I believe like that's a like the chicken and egg conversation I've had with myself over and over again with really wanting to 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 have bring people to have these experiences that I've been really lucky to have connecting with community. But then all of a sudden I'm creating the exact same thing. That's like, 
like you're saying, like the middleman, like, well, you could go and have the same experience, but many people aren't. And so wanting to create that really powerful community led experience and this connection and engagement, and not everybody has the skill set or the ambition to connect the dots, but then you're creating the exact same adding to the system that already isn't working. So um, I really appreciate that perspective. I really appreciate um, so much the work you're doing. And I, I really hope that people listening um, just start to seek um, ways that we can create systemic change in this industry. Cause I, I agree. I, I think there's so much, beauty in what many people are setting out to do. And I think we just need to examine what we've created as kind of a byproduct to the experiences that, that we, we have set out to create. And um, yeah, there's just, there's so much, um, so much room for possibility and, um, and change. And I, I think it's just time to start having the conversations that people have shied away from for, for, for many years. So um, I hate to end the conversation, but I, I think, <laughs> I guess we better, but, um, again, just for people listening, please just know, like, there's so much more here and reach out to me, reach out to Marinelle and re- look, um, at the resources she mentioned. And I think that, um, hopefully we can maybe come back and tie down one or two of these topics a little bit more in depth and, uh, and, uh, and really create, um, some more understanding of the impact that we can have when we're looking at these issues in the industry. Yeah. Thank you, Kristen, for this. I mean, you know, I appreciate the space and the time that you put in for this conversation. So they're not always comfortable, but definitely yeah. they should continue. So yeah, I, I agree. I agree. The, the most uncomfortable are usually the most rewarding. So <laughs> at least I know yeah. that much so far. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for being here. And um, I will, uh, Yeah, I can't wait to learn more from you in the future on this. Thank you for listening to The Soul of Travel. I hope you enjoyed the journey. If you love this conversation, I encourage you to subscribe, rate the podcast, and share the episodes that inspire you with others. I am so proud of the way these conversations are bringing together people from around the world. If this sounds like your community, welcome. I am so happy you are here. You can find all the ways you can be a part of the Soul of Travel and Lotus Sojourns community at www.lotussojourns.com. Here you can learn more about Soul of Travel and my guests, You can see details about the transformational sojourns I guide for women, as well as my book Sojourn, which offers an opportunity to explore your heart, mind, and the world through the pages of books specially selected to create a unique journey. I am all about community and would love to connect. You can find me on Facebook at Lotus Sojourns and join our community, the Lotus Sojourns Collective. Or follow me on Instagram, either at Lotus Sojourns or at Soul of Travel Podcast. Stay up to date by joining the Lotus Sojourns mailing list. I look forward to getting to know you and hopefully hear your story.